0: Today's guest is Elizabeth Dory Tunstall. Dean Tunstall is a design anthropologist, public intellectual, and design advocate who works at the intersections of critical theory, culture, and design. As Dean of Design at Ontario College of Art and Design University, she's the first Black and Black female Dean of Faculty of Design. She leads the Culture Based Innovation Initiative focused on using old ways of knowing to drive innovation processes that directly benefits communities. So it's a pleasure to have you here with me on The Deep Dive. Thanks for joining.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about our conversation.
0: Oh, that's awesome. We're off to a great start. When people are excited, that means good things will happen. So I have a lot to go through, but I want to make sure that we get it done as tightly as possible, which people who listen to the show know that is difficult for me to do, but I'm mm-hmm. going to do my best. And it's also difficult because you have really such an expansive way of thinking which mm-hmm. was why I wanted you to come on the show because I knew we would have a very rich conversation so whatever we don't get to here it only means there'll be a sequel so that's <laughs> how I'm setting it up <laughs> so I, I start making promises very early so what I really want to do is I'm not going to start where I think a lot of people start which is in the decolonization space I do want to get to that but I want to back into it a little bit with maybe initial conversation which has us talk about maybe the difference between the human experience, which is very individual, and a humanity experience, which is more collective. So design is often framed in those two boxes. And it it seems like you lean toward bringing a, a more forward, a more collective experience in your design thinking. So I wanted to start there.
1: Well, it's actually really interesting because even in that framing, it's like, no, human is collective. I don't, I'd actually, like the concept of human, I always think of as a collectivity and I think of, and then humanity is just, for me, it's just the kind of characteristics of what we're choosing to define what it means to be human, right? And so if it's a spectrum, I'm definitely on the spectrum of collective, both in terms of i think my um inclinations in terms of feeling or being raised in a context where again very community center community focused like i'm african american and so grew up with a deep sense of being part of a community but also, again, as an anthropologist, one of the defining characteristics of that field, right, is that you're focused on all things human and pre-human, right, across time and space. And so, all of my academic training, in that sense, is looking towards collectivities or communities. If we want to like get super like technical about it, I think it's directly related to why my engagement with design, because design in the way that it's distinguished itself in some ways from older notions of art is that design is about the collective as well. Like you design for in multiples, right? So that you design and share and connect to other people in a very direct way. So I'm completely on the spectrum of the collective to the point where, you know, like if, if psychology in some ways is really framed around like the individual, I live and exist very little, in the space of just thinking about the individual.
0: And I guess I'll back up a little bit and kind of give a little bit more of a frame to that question. I think what I'm trying to get at is, and I agree with your sentiment and which is why I kind of put the question that way, because when I'm speaking very broadly, when I think about maybe the way in which we think about the design of our the tools that we use, the commercialization of those concepts, there seems to be a lot of focus on the eye of that, right? That if I have the thing that is important, or I have the thing that adds to my particular comfort or what have you, then... The process is kind of serving that rather than pulling in other perspectives, other voices. You know, we're not thinking always about how everyone is using these things, which I think is a core conceit of design that makes it more collective.
1: Yeah, like I said, for me, that's kind of one of the differentiations between art and design. And I, it's just one of the things I experienced this really deeply because I often get asked to do adjudications for like art residencies and things like that. And it's one of those things, it drives me crazy, because I'm reading the artist statement. And it's like, I, 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 me, 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 I, I, me, 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 my feelings, my mental health, my expression, my aesthetics. And that grates against all of my being, because I'm always about the we. So I always feel I love Artists, but I'm always more comfortable in the community of designers because actually, most designers that I know, and this is not just like, you know, human centered, people centered designers, every designer that I've encountered. And my entire career of design always speaks to the we, whether it's the we of the team, because again, a lot of the things you make are complex. Like the manufacturing process is complex. You have to collaborate with other people, right? Or whether it's the we of the user for whom it's designing. Like I've, there's very few designers that are in my circle of acquaintances that actually engage in the process of designing in a context of I. Very, very few. And if those who do, they're also framing themselves as artists, like they're drawing upon that discourse of artists,
0: right? In one of the initial comments you made in answering the question, you talked about this idea of designing through space and time. And, you know, that really leapt out at me because in my work, I talk a lot about this concept of stewardship, you know, not something I invented, but I use that a lot of business settings where this kind of talk is not usually prevalent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I basically define stewardship as this, this idea of shared responsibility of us as a society to oversee, protect, and pass on critical resources over the course of generations. And so when you mentioned this idea of time, you know, I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe expand on that a little bit as it pertains to how you see the design process really unfolding in this way of pulling in more voices and more perspectives.
1: So this is directly related to again decolonization, which you say you don't get to yet, but I, that's like a such a framing orientation for me because again I'm, I'm cool with the in, segue, it's perfect because in the context of like you know I worked for you know six years in Australia and they're deeply working and connected with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, so Indigenous communities. And their traditions of making go back documented 65,000 years. You still see in their contemporary expression the continuity, the insistence of many of those cultural forms into their art and design today. So we often talk about design as this thing that happened in Europe in the 1800s. But when you think about practices of making around the world that were for the use of themselves, but also the use of others, right? Trade. Like, again, there's, you know, 65,000 years of traditions of making and there's, you know, in terms of like indigenous North America, we're talking 25, maybe 30,000 years of traditions of making. I mean, the pyramids in some ways are like babies, right? Like, like 5,000 years of, of traditions of making. And we can't, we still can't figure out the technologies that were required to make those things happen, right? Even with all our science, knowledge, whatever, we still cannot figure out those technologies. And so for me, I always think of like making as like, again, like it's a very, and it's not only something that humans do. Animals make, crows make tools. I was watching, you know, I'm reading a lot around and watching documentaries around octopus and how they manipulate their environment for protection, for hunting, to make their jobs easier to hunt. <laughs> and so it's a thing we that many creatures make. So then our traditions of making go back to, again, some of the earliest creatures once we figured out we needed to adapt our environment to make our lives better.
0: And, you know, even bringing in these ideas, these concepts, you know, you're kind of pulling in the natural world. There's a lot of things that you're unpacking in the way you're thinking about things. And it does sort of resist the particular canon that you also cited, which kind of puts everything in this kind of European box at a particular timeframe. And then everything extends out from that. So it sounds like you're really telling a far different narrative story as you build this practice.
1: Why I'm telling my story, but I'm telling also the stories of a lot of people around the world, right? Again, if you travel around the world, and I travel a lot, well, pre-COVID, I traveled a lot. Now I travel digitally a lot. And because I'm a design anthropologist and I'm interested in design, people always show me their stuff. <laughs> they show me their stuff. And then they tell me the stories about the stuff they made and how it's tied to their culture and their heritage and their communities and their struggles. So in that sense, it's like the story I'm telling is like a, like it's everyone's story of design. It's just that, and it's not even Europe. Europe tells actually a quite different story. I have lots of faculty who are actually European you know, like from Germany and the Netherlands. And they're like, we don't talk about design this way either. So (laughs) I think it's a very particular North American notion of design around that origin story of the 1800s that I think has become dominant because in the way that sort of North America has become dominant in the establishment of institutions of design, the establishment of publications around design. And so it's allowed itself to be the kind of hegemonic story, but that's like 2%, 98% of the places going on in the world is talking about design differently. And so my role is to bring those stories about design from within the communities that I'm in, engaged with, from across the communities that I've engaged with, and create a stronger platform in which those stories about design can be heard just as much as the sort of North American looking back at Europe <laughs> absolutely um, story that is so popular today but it's not the only one
0: and you know I think we've started to segue into the the decolonization portion you know lots of notes but what I want to do is you know really jump into how do we take this concept of decolonization because we see it it's I think it's become more part of the, I don't want to say mainstream, but I think it's become a term used in more and more areas, disciplines, industries, whatever, however you want to think about that. And yet I want to try to drill down to how do you think it can become something that is a process, that is a verb, something that is actionable rather than just an idea or an aspiration, or maybe there's a combination of all of that. So I'm curious how you think about that.
1: Well, you know, my thoughts are very much influenced by um, this wonderful article, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, by Eve Tuck and W.K. Yang, where they basically, like, they break it all down for you. That is like, if it's not, if the key outcomes of your action is not providing sovereignty to indigenous peoples, the original custodians of the land, then you're not doing decolonization. You know, you might be doing diversity, you might be doing inclusion, but you're not doing decolonization because the heart of decolonization is a complete dismantling and disruption of the colonial power structures in which all of the resources (laughs) belong to mostly white, wealthy people. The land has been dispossessed from indigenous peoples and the labor of black and other racialized communities is deeply exploited to work that land, right? And so if you're not involved, if it doesn't lead to any of those things, then yeah, it's just a metaphor. And it's powerless and thus harmful to use that language If your key outcome is not providing the conditions in which indigenous sovereignty is possible and a permanent fixture of everyday life.
0: And, you know, the process of colonization and, you know, I'll I'll link maybe a more modern term gentrification, you know, being in New York, I've kind of experienced that all my life in varying degrees. Different forces, I'm not making them the same, but there's a ideology I think that exists behind both. And there's tangible elements to both. There's laws and there's processes and there's also intangible ways in which those forces interact. Like, how do you see that that tangible and intangible interacting in a design space where there's material use of things and the creation of objects and such, but there's also, you know, ideas that we're kind of discussing right now.
1: So as a design anthropologist, my approach to life is, or my focus on things, is how design translates values into tangible experiences. So my work, my life work, is looking at the interactions between intangible values and then how they may manifest through design. And then through understanding those the, the way in which people experience or don't experience those values through those tangible manifestations then how do you go back and either redesign it or how do you go back and rearticulate A different set of values that might be more prominent values and then, again, go through this process of design and then evaluating experience around it. So that's my whole entire methodology to life. (laughs) That's just to say, in all of these processes, so colonization, again, this was a material act. It wasn't symbolic. It was the symbolics came later to justify the material act the material act was basically two the taking of land and resources you can't get more material than that right and then two the enslavement of other people and again the first slaves were the indigenous people but because of the diseases that were carried by the european colonizers that that population was decimated so then they imported other labor black labor right? In order to compensate for the loss of indigenous labor, again, through disease. So that is the very material reality. And that is the same, like gentrification is that same process. What are you doing in gentrification? you are taking over someone's land, dispossessing them, right? And you are setting up structures, right? Like if you're a person who still still lives, able to live in Brooklyn, then in some ways it's like you are structured to enter that space maybe as like a waitress or a barista or, you know, whatever, but not as a landowner anymore, right? Not as a person or a business owner in some ways anymore, Right. So those are similar processes, again, that are tied to this idea of one of the terms I think it's really important to introduce is, is again, this, this notion of white supremacist culture, or white supremacy, because it is has a time and a place, but it actually set up all the legal structures that in many ways justified particular practices of colonization. So White supremacy first appeared as a legal concept in 1681 in Maryland, and its intent was around it was originally sort of an anti-miscegenation law so non-interracial to stop interracial relationships and um, but also labor because it was prompted by the fact that like the poor european indentured servants and sort of freed blacks and then enslaved blacks at the time had gotten together and and basically had a insurrection a rebellion and so the strategy Right, by the white European landowners is like, ah, let's remove, let's divide and conquer. We'll give the white Europeans a higher status so that they no longer see their alliances with indigenous people or black people. And therefore, we'll set up this whole structure where they'll be part of the oppressive structure instead of fighting against the oppressive structure. This is really important because what the law said again, it said two things. It says, if you are a white woman and you marry someone who's indigenous or black, you basically you take on their social lower social status.
0: You seed your status. <laughs> yeah.
1: And then the thing that they said is that in the court of law, basically the word of any black person or indigenous person or to a certain extent, white women would not count against the word of a white woman especially landowning male, but sort of generally a white male. That meant you can murder a black person or indigenous person. And if there's no white individuals who are wanting to protest against that, or, you know, even if there's indigenous or black witnesses, that their word doesn't count in the court of law, which means that if you're white, you can get away with murder, which is, again, that's like the basic standard of like, humanity is do not murder other people, right? So if you can get away with murder that's like the highest standard of being of your being able to inflict your will and your supremacy, right on everyone else. This
0: sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's still there. It's still here. So this is just to say that, like, again, that what we're still dealing with in these process of gentrification is, again, just it's continued as part of colonization to the fact that, again, what it says is that the desires of you know, let's say a developer who's deeply embedded and engaged with systems of white supremacy culture, right, that they have the law on their side to be yeah. able to take away the livelihood, the land, the sense of like cultural and community identity of people who live in this place, because... That's what it means to be white. Right. And again, white doesn't necessarily has to be in the body. That's why like the whole concept of sort of white supremacist culture is really important because it's a cultural system that is built into our legal system. So if you are positioning yourself as white, you can participate in the same sort of systems of gentrification. Right.
0: It's the internal race to proximity to whiteness you know yeah. the closer yeah. you get to it the better your standing will be a lot of rappers think that way
1: yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. well no name no names oh there's someone turned blonde awfully quickly <laughs> exactly is exactly.
0: that he always sucked anyway so I'm a, I'm a little wayne hater so i'll say his name i don't care it sucks um the brooklyn in me will never allow me to respect a rapper like little wayne <laughs>
1: <laughs> but again, that that again, all these things are made tangible by like, you know, like if you walking through a neighborhood, you see all the tangible manifestations of that change in terms of like the signage that is actually on the space. Sometimes it's like it's actually about like the cleanliness of this, yeah. of the system, because the, like the streets, because now they're getting better services by, yeah. you know, the a- municipality, which weren't. Paying as much attention before, right?
0: One of my boys has a, a picture that he took. He lives down in Atlanta, but he sent this picture of like a house, a new development that was going up downtown and he took a picture of the numbers of the address of on the door and he was like, oh, this is the gentrification font. You know, (laughs) like (laughs) what is it when you see something
1: that's painted in like that like gray, neutral, light gray, and then they have like the accent door, it's like, oh gentrification, that's like high gentrification. Exactly.
0: Exactly. You know, the change is a coming or it's already, it's already literally at at your doorstep. You know, when you know when you when you talk about culture, I wanna, you know, obviously I, I center that in almost everything, right? I think many of us do. And when you were kind of going through that idea of white supremacy as a culture, you know, it tells and enforces a particular story. And it makes me think as I was doing some research, you know, you highlight this idea of like seven grandfathers teaching, which has, you know, seven quick things. I'll, I'll read them all here just so listeners can get a sense of it. You know, wisdom, this is not a particular order. So wisdom love, respect, bravery with the flip of integrity, honesty, humility, and then truth, right? So when I think about those concepts, that ideology, that living way of being, that is also a very different cultural story, Mm -hmm. right? Which holds within it very different values. So I wanted to give an opportunity to kind of juxtapose maybe those two ideas, or if you want, just spend time on that in his own space, you know? So you know, cause I think it's so important to tell a different cultural story and to imagine mm-hmm. something different. And it sounds like there's a chance to do that through these indigenous stories, through that stewardship of the land and kind of bring that into the future. So that's, that's yeah, the Yeah.
1: I mean, again, the work, the way in which the process of decolonization makes itself manifest in the work that we're doing, you know, in design at OCAD University, but also other places. Is that in many ways, putting on an equal footing indigenous principles and indigenous epistemologies, ways of being and ways of knowing in the world? So the seven grandfather teachings are deeply tied to, at least here where I'm in, in Toronto, to like Anishinaabe culture. So I, I'm trying to be specific because one of the things that we talk about is that we gloss over in many ways the great diversity that exists between Indigenous communities, whether they're in Canada, like First Nation, Inuit or Métis, Native American. And so um, kind of calling out the specificity sometimes is really an important part of that breaking down that notion of a monolithic indigeneity, right? Mm -hmm. And what's really, again, these are things that to a certain extent, they're actually quite universal amongst Communities that are deeply connected to the land, right? Because if you're deeply connected to the land, you're in many ways required to have those characteristics. Like you have to have humility. Because the wind and the sun is much mightier than you are if you're trying to grow corn on your balcony. <laughs> like <that Absolutely>. part. <laughs> or you're trying to defeat an in- infection of uh, mites. <laughs> and you like you learn humility real, really quick. You have to be brave because you're oftentimes, again, facing a world where everything else in the world is better adapted to living than humans. Like why we had to develop so many technologies is that we can't see as well as other creatures. We definitely can't smell as well as other creatures. I mean, we can run, but not very long and very fast compared to other creatures. And so you have to be brave if you're living close to the land, because there's so many things that can kill you, because everything else in nature is just better built than we are.
0: Exactly. More built Um, to survive.
1: Yes. (laughs) So if you're living close to the land, if you're living in relationship to the land and all of the other creatures, you develop those characteristics naturally. We have to talk about them and create sort of stories about them more so now because We are not as deeply engaged in the process of inner cultivation of ourselves. Like we're about the external outcomes, but we don't talk about as much as what does it mean? What is the internal characteristics that we need to develop and values within ourselves? And one of the works that we're trying to do, right, in terms of like, you know, one of my faculty, Howard Monroe, who's Métis is trying to realign the design process so that it is in alignment with the seven grandfather teaching so that students are working on their internal cultivation as well as the kind of external outputs that you're supposed to get in every design phase. And it's really interesting because when you talk to him about like the experimentations he's did at that, he's like, (laughs) Oh, the students in some ways, they're not ready. Like they haven't, they've been so distant from Mm -hmm. these notions of internal cultivation that like trying to introduce them in the first year of an industrial design foundations course is really difficult because they don't have a lot of the basis, you know, like growing up to really understand what those values mean. Mm. And how they then make themselves manifest in the choices that you make as a designer, right? So if everyone was living, you know, again, those indigenous principles of the seven, you know, grandfather teachings, we would not be in this situation that we are right now in many places in the world. Because if you have, if you're engaged with truth, right, if truth is important, then um, you wouldn't be telling so many lies,
0: Yeah. And the lies wouldn't be just so egregious.
1: (laughs) Yes. 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 And if you were coming from a sense of love, then you would be demonstrating real care for people like what COVID-19 and, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement around, again, you know, the perpetual killing of Black and Indigenous people by those who are supposed to serve and protect. What's been exacerbated, right, through these conditions as they interact with one another is again, just the depth of the lack of love, right? For our, you know, the humanity of, you know, Black and Indigenous and Latinx communities in particular, the xenophobia now around Asian communities. Like all of this is around, again, like we just need to love. And by love, like it doesn't have to be super esoteric. Love is just means that we in many ways recognize the beauty of others And care for that.
0: Yeah. Right? And And, care for that. Yeah. I mean, love is a radical form of activism. I talk about it all the time. So listeners are probably tired of hearing me talk about (laughs) it, but you're here, so you have to live with it. You know, in in the time we have left, because I'm keeping an eye on the time, what I want to do is, you know, the many firsts that are in your career, obviously you're you're sitting in a seat where you are the first. We mentioned it in the intro. You know, very recently, and I want to ask your opinion about respect in Mm. this particular situation. So I'm tying it to these seven grandfathers' teachings. But, you know, very recently, Leslie Loco resigned from teaching in here in the US at City College. She was the dean of architecture there. And in her statement, which I'll read in part here very quickly, a portion of it, she says, as a response to why she resigned, you know, race is never far from the surface of any situation in the US. Having come directly from South Africa, I wasn't prepared for the way it manifests in the US. And quite simply, I lacked the tools to both process and deflect it. The lack of respect and empathy for Black people, especially Black women, caught me off guard although it is by no means unique to Spitzer. I suppose I'd say in the end that my resignation was a profound act of self-preservation. So what I want to do there very quickly is kind of anchor on the respect portion because it's part of these principles. It's lacking in the institutions in which many of us are operating, whether they're academic or otherwise. Mm -hmm. You're sitting in a seat as a first And I'm Mm -hmm. sure it's not your first first. (laughs) So I wanted to give you an opportunity to reflect on that idea of respect, given the, the context that I've just laid out.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the ethos of the faculty design at OCAT University is respectful design. And that comes out of, in some ways that, like I said, my engagement with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, engagement with sort of sustainability, and an engagement with sort of radical feminism. Because at the heart of all of those, and then, you know, critical race theory, because that's what, I, you know, so like, this is conversations between, you know, an Indigenous professor, Norm Sheehan, Deidre Barron, who's like a strong sort of Marxist feminist feminist, Frank Fisher, who was rest in peace, like really into sustainability seeking. And we were all trying to talk about what it is that we share in common around our different theories and backgrounds. And it was, what was the center is this notion of respect, this desire for respect. So when I came to OCAT, I brought the notion of respectful design as kind of a differentiator and then engaged my community in a process of defining what that means to them individually, in each program, and then as an institution in general. This is just to say that I feel I've had a good experience of being, relatively good experience of being a first at OCAD University. So, And it's because there was a certain measure of respect that they, again, they knew when they brought me in that I was going to change things. Like if you (laughs) go through my CV and you see the kind of things that I build, the initiatives that I build, like I accelerate change. It's what I do. So they knew that coming in, I mean, not fully prepared for it. It's one thing to see it on paper. It's another thing to be experiencing it on a daily basis. But what we got to is a place of mutual respect. And was built on trust, like we had to trust each other. And we had to trust each other in a couple of ways. I had to trust the institution enough to come and share my pain, my negative experiences, because in some ways that was the only way in which they would know what it is that they would have to change, right? And then I had to trust them that they would make the changes, right? Right that they would make the changes. So respect becomes important because if you know who you are and you know who you're interacting with and you give them the space, to do what it is that they need to do in order to help you bring about the transformation that you've asked for, right? Like when I applied, they, in the call, they were looking for a dean who could help facilitate the process of decolonization. And I think the term they was using, indigenous revitalization. So that's what they called for. And I answered to that. So then, and again, it was a bit rough, like, you know, there's the first few months where they didn't want to talk about the fact that I was the first black dean of a faculty design anywhere in the world, and even sometimes there's these like little microaggressions that happen where it's like she's the first black dean of OCAD. No, like no, the whole world, <laughs> <"I'm> The first <laughs> black dean in design in North America. No, the whole world, right? And so there was a little bit of a a lack of trust around that, right? Because I'm like. I was a researcher, so when I thought this was going to be like my research process was on point. Like I went through email search—I mean, um, I'm email uh, search of any institution, right? I went through all the jets and Ebony to see if there was like you know they called out the first black, like because in North America, if there's a first black, it's been in the records of Ebony or Jet, right? Absolutely. Uh, I went through one woman I actually who was racially ambiguous. I actually sent an email saying, hey, I'm going to get this gig. can't quite figure out what you are. So I just want to check and make sure that do you self-identify as black, right? Because if that's the case, then, you know, you would be the first and I wouldn't. And they're like, wrote back, like, no, I do not self-identify as black and good on you, girl, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I wish some of these people had done that in academia, given all these frauds we got out here now.
1: I was, yeah. <laughs> and so... So for me, that was a little bit of disrespect, but my thing was to sort of say, but I'm going to push this message forward, right? And this is where, you know, I am in a real position of not just influence, but power, right? And that, I think, like the work that we've been doing at OCAD, why we've been able to accelerate it in really great ways is that we finally have someone who's in a real position of power, that there are the key decisions that get made around budget, around hiring, that those live in the decanal level, right? They live in the decanal level. So to have me there and for me to have that lens towards how can this power be used to further make the institution accountable to Black, Indigenous, POC queer, you know, all these kind of marginalized perspectives, how can that power serve them? Then that has enabled us to sort of move really, really quickly to do amazing things like the black cluster hire. That was an amazing thing that was built on an indigenous cluster hire, which was another amazing thing. And that fact that now other institutions have used that model, you know, like RISDs have to be better than everyone, 10 (laughs) black cluster hire, right? All the other institutions have that model that they can follow. Are like, that's a big thing. And that is all possible because there is, there still is respect, right? There's respect between the leadership and myself. There's respect between the faculty and myself. There's respect between, you know, the faculty association, the union and myself. And we all understand the roles that we play in trying to make the institution better. But we all also give each other the space that is needed for us to bring about the change that we've all, as a community, agreed to.
0: I love these ideas kind of all being pulled together. You know, I'm going to skip off the dome because we have, usually have two segments in the show. I'm going to skip that because we have like a minute. And I don't want to leave our listeners without a drop if you have one ready for them. And, you know, you, you touched on so many things, the accountability that was in my notes. I have a lot of notes. We didn't even get to how we hold power accountable and a lot of other things I wanted to get to. But again, it's going to be a sequel. Um, But I want to leave space before I thank you profusely, Dean Tunstall, for being on the show is a drop. So I have one. If you have one, I could do mine first, prep you for yours, however you want to do it. I'm cool.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure what you're talking about. So you go first. (laughs) Okay,
0: it might be lost in the notes. Well, very quickly, a drop is a recommendation for our listeners. It can be anything at all. It does. I've had poems, songs, music. It doesn't have to be heavy. It can be light. Mine is lighter than normal. Um, I usually give a lot of books and stuff. But The Drop is basically a graphic novel called Excellence. It's written by, uh, well, was created by an author named Brandon Thomas. It's a great story, black wizardry and magic and this really interesting world that they've created, kind of a contrast to the way in which we think about those things. So that's my particular drop. And like I said, your drop can be anything at all. Before Can it me. be
1: self, self-promoting? self <laughs>
0: Yeah, of course. Okay.
1: So then my job would be on November the 18th. Let me just check that. OCAD University Continuing Studies is offering a course on hiring for diversity, decolonization, and inclusion in the creative industry. So it opens an online course. It opens up November the 18th. But it's a thing where it's a kind of three-week course with five modules. And there's a on Tuesdays, there's a one hour kind of Q&A engagement with me. So if you go to like continuing studies, OCADU, or just put in like continuing studies and Dory or Tunstall, then it'll come up. But it's one of those things that, you know, like everyone asks, is asking me, like, how do you do what it is that you've done? You know, like, how do you make this kind of institutional change? And so we really break it down both in terms of, the experience of being in that change, but also like, here's the things you need to read. Here's the exercises you need to do to figure out how to make the change happen in the institutions and organizations that you're a part of.
0: I'll make sure that we get that up and posted. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to get you out on this. I'm a minute over, um, but I want to respect your time. So This has been a pleasure. I really thank you for joining me on The Deep Dive. Thank you so much, Dean Tunstall.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me on The Deep Dive. Like now I'm super super excited about hearing more conversations. So I enjoyed this. Thank you.
0: It's been a pleasure having Dean Tunstall join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts or our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at Far Flung Phil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.